For well over two centuries, Americans have celebrated July 4th. It was the day the Continental Congress adopted the document drafted by Thomas Jefferson, proclaiming the American colonies' independence from Great Britain with those immortal words, all men are created equal. But for millions of African Americans, those words rang hollow and didn't begin the long, painful process of becoming reality until June 19, 1865, when the last slaves in the Confederacy were finally freed. This week, President Biden signed into law a measure declaring Juneteenth, as we now know it, a national holiday. How much should we celebrate this as an important step in our reckoning with a painful past? How much work still needs to be done? We'll ask those questions and talk about much else about the country's racial divide with Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center and author of the new book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And I believe this is the last day of Danny Clydman's well-deserved vacation. So once again, Victoria and I will carry the load uh, until next week. Uh, and um, I have to say, uh, the uh, speed with which the Juneteenth national holiday rushed through Congress really struck me. You know, we spend months talking about legislation and its slow process through the United States Congress, something you are quite familiar with, Victoria, <laughs> being the former Senate staffer you are. So then we see something like this, which just races through and then immediately <laughs> takes effect the very next day with, uh, you know, the federal government shutting down uh, was pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, yeah, I, it was uh, the, the number of emails that were flying yesterday with everyone kind of saying, oh, gulp. Oh, my God. Tomorrow's a holiday. We didn't realize it uh, was was extraordinary. And as as you mentioned, it was came completely unexpected. And what was equally unexpected about the speed with which it moved was the extent of the bipartisanship with which it moved. Scarcely uh, a Republican in the House or the Senate voted against the proposal. Well, a few in the, in the House did, but, you know, it's it's the House Republicans. So, you know, <laughs> there's some pretty... Someone's, someone's got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> some exactly. Some pretty retro folks there. But, um, but I do think it's, you know, it is worth, you know, celebrating a bit that this was largely a bipartisan agreement. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the debates over the Martin Luther King holiday, which was resisted by, you know, quite a few Republicans for many years until it was finally enacted. So, uh, you know, maybe this is a small step towards progress. Yes. But meanwhile, grinding it out slowly but surely and uh, perfectly demonstrating exactly what you mentioned, Mike, which is the extraordinary difficulty of getting anything through through Congress is the uh, the effort to expand uh, or 
protect, I guess, voting rights in America. So there was big news this week uh, when Joe Manchin announced a compromise or a series of bullet point proposals regarding voting rights and campaign finance reform that he was willing to support. Uh, You may recall that he had previously indicated he was opposed to the banner piece of legislation on voting rights that Democrats have been pushing for at least uh, three to four years now called uh, H.R. 1, the For the People Act. When Manchin said he was against it, everyone pretty much gave up hope that the that the bill would pass or that it would be enacted this week. He says Here's what he will support. Stacey Abrams embraces it. All of a sudden, it looks like the legislation may have a little bit of life left in it. And then Mitch McConnell to the rescue (laughs) for the Republicans. Uh, Here's what he said on Thursday. I've taken a look at all the new state laws. None of them are designed to suppress the vote. There is no rational basis for the federal government to take over all of American elections. Now, I know where you're coming from on this, Victoria, uh, being at the Brennan Center. I make um, no secret about it. <laughs> I do not agree with McConnell that none of the new state laws suppress the vote. I do think that um, some of the claims about the Georgia law were exaggerated. We've talked about that on the show. I, you know, I think there is a distinction to be made between voter suppression and voter turnout suppression, you know, that, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's sort of the distinction the frog might make when the water first starts getting a little warm and then eventually it starts boiling. That's one way of looking at it, right? Okay. Um, But I do just think that, look, comparing the comparisons to Jim Crow always rubbed me the wrong way, if only because Jim Crow was real, was a concerted effort targeting African-Americans to keep them from voting. Most of these laws, uh, and some of them do go further and are more troubling than others, are really aimed at suppressing the turnout. Low interest voters, people who are not really dedicated to voting in the first place, who yeah, it sounds, any, it sounds like, like it sounds like you believe yeah. people should have to like fight their way to not to vote before way. before not we value or, or no, you no, know not fight their way. But come on, when when you have a law like Georgia's, which you know allows for mandates. Uh, early voting, 15 days, which mandates no excuse absentee ballots. And there's always the traditional way, like we all did, of showing up at the polls on election day. You know, I find it hard to believe that's targeting people to keep them from voting. But Look, that's a it's, it's uh, our eternal <laughs> debate, Mike. <laughs> that's a subject for another day. Uh, I, I certainly don't go as far as McConnell goes. And I think that the mansion compromise may open up a door for some sort of compromise here. But, you know, it's going to be difficult in any case. Um, there's a lot uh, of much broader issues to talk about with Ted Johnson. So let's get to it. All right. We now have with us uh, Ted Johnson, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center, a former U.S. Navy commander, a former speechwriter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the author of the new book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Ted, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. 
And we are excited to have you on the day of the first national holiday of Juneteenth, which was signed Thursday uh, into law by President Biden. Um, give us your thoughts on Juneteenth being a national holiday and whether it begins the process or continues the process of addressing many of the issues you raise about America's painful past? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm still digesting the last few days. I mean, it, it is frankly remarkable to me that the Senate unanimously passed this act and that only 14 people voted against it in the House. And then it becomes law yesterday when Biden signs it. Um, on the whole, I think it's a good move for the country. I think that, uh, in, you know, you can look at the title of the act. It's called the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act um, as a way of associating Juneteenth with July 4th uh, to suggest that this is not a black holiday, but this is a holiday for the nation to re recognize that the independence it declared on July 4th, 1776 wasn't really complete until after the Civil War, until word of the Emancipation Proclamation had trickled down, and until really it sort of signals the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that tries to undo a lot of the things that had been done in the first several decades of the country's life. Um, so I'm glad. Uh, I, we are a nation that likes its ritual. We are a nation that likes our observances and our, our, our commemorations. And for that, I think having a national holiday provides a focal point for the more of the nation to ask, what exactly is Juneteenth again and why is it important and how is it consistent with our Ameri the narrative we tell ourselves about ourselves? For that reason, I think it's good. But here's, here's the last bit I'll say, and then I'll, I'll be quiet about it. Some of this feels really performative to me. At the same time, we're having discussions about the history we're going to teach our children, uh, 1619 Project versus the 1776 Commission. At the same time, we're talking about the kinds of theories we're going to ban from public schools and the critical race theory. This unwillingness to reckon with our the fullness of our history, coupled with the bipartisan, um, nearly unanimous support for Juneteenth, uh, that's a tension that I think characterizes the quandary our nation has wrestled with since its inception. Were you um, surprised at all about how quickly this moved through Congress? I am. Yeah, I absolutely am. And, and again, the, the activism behind this becoming uh, a holiday, both first in the state of Texas and then nationally, is, is, uh, it has a long, long uh, trail. But um, I'm surprised that three weeks ago, I don't know that I'd heard people were going to consider, Congress was going to consider this. Uh, and so for it to hear, to hear on Monday, Tuesday, that the Senate, that the Senate didn't filibuster, uh, which had happened in the previous year, but passed it uh, was, was amazing. But here's the other thing. Um, if you look at Donald Trump's appeal to black voters last year before the presidential election, uh, but one of the tenets in this platform was to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. This was in Trump's rhetoric and in, in, in his plan for his, his appeal to black I, Americans. I, I did not know that. Yes, that absolutely. That is pretty interesting. Yeah. So so that's, you know, for all of the concern that Republican Party members have about the thumb Trump is putting on their party's scale in terms of primaries, congressional races, et cetera, they had top cover. 
um, to support this because it was in the Trump appeal to black voters. Uh, and so in this way, it wasn't politically risky. It was a way of countering the narrative that the Republican Party is racist or trying to suppress the votes of black people. Uh, and so in this way, it was actually politically expedient not to contest the establishment of Juneteenth as a national holiday. So Ju- Juneteenth itself, the original Juneteenth back in 1865, is a celebration that has a, a, a an undercurrent of sadness to it, too, mm-hmm. obviously. I mean, it's not a... You know, there's there's no way you can just celebrate Juneteenth. You know, it's not an unalloyed, you know, moment of of glee and happiness in American history. And what's so strange is the passage of Juneteenth as a national holiday today also has this undercurrent. It's not an unalloyed great thing that was done. It's and it's something that you mentioned when you first answered Mike about uh the the undercurrents of backlash to the sixteen nineteen project mm-hmm. to critical race theory um that we're experiencing today. You know, I, I was uh, doing a little bit of research before we spoke. There are at least twenty states that have um introduced some sort of uh, legislation to ban teaching critical race theory. I think it's been passed so far in maybe upwards of six states or something like this. What is this backlash against critical race theory. I mean, maybe we should begin with what is critical race theory actually versus what is it in the uh, in the kind of the, the backlash that's going on right now? Yeah. So the bumper sticker public rhetoric version of critical race theory we're hearing now um, is that critical race theory says America is racist and white people are bad. And of course, that's not accurate. But in when you put it in those terms, when you caricature it that way, it's really easy to divide the public, the electorate, and both sides um, can leverage that misinformation uh, to their political advantage. And that's why there's so much currency. Uh, if you're you know, a member of a party that is increasingly white, increasingly rural, increasingly uh, sort of resenting the changing America, then caricaturing critical race theory or the 1619 Project for that matter as This is a nation trying to say that your forefathers were evil people and now it's time to get rid of all of the the history, all of the contributions they made to the country and think about something different. What critical race theory actually says is that our nation is structured in a way where those who are considered white have more advantages and privileges than those who aren't, and that the structures of our society reinforce that privilege. Now, we can debate about the term white privilege, which has like a whole nother set of of arguments about whether people earn their their successes or whether or not they've been sort of gifted those things because of of a society that discriminates against others. But the point of critical race theory is to say the way our society is structured is Uh, It leans against some people for no other reason than their race and that the remedy to these structures um, must be legal and through public policy. Now, on that general sort of understanding of it, I think most Americans will recognize that if you are rich and white in this country, your road to the American dream or to successes or realizing the full rights and privileges of citizenship is probably a little bit easier than someone who was born poor and white or someone who was born poor and black or someone who is um, or somebody who is rich and black. Exactly. Exactly right. And so the remedy to those things, if that is what the structures produce, these barriers is public policy. And, and so, so again, what we're seeing is a lot of performance, a, a lot of uh, looking for ways to divide the American populace 
over the question of racism because it's politically expedient to do so. It is helpful for fundraising. It is helpful for winning elections, but it is horrible to the project of American democracy and it undermines everything we say we want in our sacred documents about all of us being created equal and about these unalienable rights. Uh, it undermines the democratic project. You used uh, some pretty key words in your response to Victoria's question when you said we can debate. And to me, that's you know an important part of this because I think some of the resistance to critical race theory is from people who perceive a stridency from those who are promoting it and an unwillingness to debate, the unwillingness to accept. These are our history is complicated. Uh, it's open to multiple interpretations. It's continually rewritten. And, you know, I'll give you an example, the 1619 Project, which obviously made a big splash, but, you know, prominent historians, you know, took issue with some of its substance and some of its proclamations. So I just wonder, I mean, is there a need on both sides now, including the people who promote critical race theory, to perhaps lower the tone of the rhetoric a bit and try to engage in a debate rather than, you know, dictating this is the way uh, history should be taught, this is the way we should analyze these questions? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, a couple things here. The first is that, um, as you mentioned, look, 99.9% .9 of the people talking about critical race theory don't actually know what critical race theory is. It becomes a vehicle to push um, whatever it is they're trying to get through our country, whether it's uh, voting fraud protections, and, and we know voter fraud isn't, isn't an issue, or whether it's to uh, completely reimagine American democracy or law enforcement or these sorts of things. But most folks are in the middle, recognize that racism is still a problem in the United States and that someone should do something about it. And individual efforts aren't sufficient enough to change a nation of 330 million people. And so the state must take action. Public policy is the way forward. But the biggest problem with the way we talk about race in America is embodied in the way this critical race theory debate um, is happening, is that racism becomes a proxy for the behaviors and attitudes of white people. Um, if you think racism, if, if racism to you is the way white people treat people of color, then any kind of racism we talk about, institutional, systemic, critical race theory, all this stuff is basically a castigation, a critique, a chastisement of white Americans' behavior historically and today. And therefore, it's their responsibility to fix all the problems that racism has wrought. And that is not accurate, in my view. Um, the other part of this is that uh, structural racism is so problematic in our society that nothing can be done until um, we we completely reimagine the society. And of course, that poll is, is uh, a, a long reach. Instead, when we have conversations about racism in America, if we want it to be productive, we have to start with defining our terms. When I say systemic racism or structural racism is a threat to America, the first question shouldn't be, why do you think white people are responsible for why black people aren't doing well? The question should be, what do you mean by structural racism? What do you mean by threat? 
And what do you mean by America? And then when I define those things, here's what I mean by structural racism. Here's what I mean when I say it's an existential threat. And here's what I mean when I'm talking about America. And I'm not talking about white people being bad. I'm not talking about, um, you know, the racism causing another civil war in the next three years to cause the country to collapse on itself. Then when we have a, 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 a common understanding of the terminology, then we can have an honest uh, or more likely to have an honest and open uh, discussion about what needs to happen next. And uh, barring that, um, barring that nuance, uh, I, I think we're going to lose the opportunity in front of us. So address those questions. What mm. do you mean by structural racism? And what are the some of public policy implications of that? Right. So when I say that structural racism is an existential threat to America, what I mean is structural racism is when a society is structured in a way that two people who are similarly situated, except for the color of their skin, put in the same, have the same advantages, privileges, put in the same amount of work and end up at very different spots in their health, their education outcomes, their pay, their employment opportunities, then the way society is structured has made it more difficult for one of those folks to achieve the American dream, to realize the full rights and privileges of citizenship than the other person for no other reason than the group they belong to. When I say it's an existential threat to America, I'm not talking about the geopolitical entity known as the United States, the nation state. I'm talking about the American idea that's enshrined in our founding documents, the Declaration and the Constitution, which says that we are all created equal and that we all have these unalienable rights, including to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the threat is to the idea. Racial inequality cannot coexist with the American ideal because equality and racial inequality are inherently incompatible. And so while the United States has proven that it can live quite comfortably with racism in its society, through slavery, through Jim Crow, um, the idea of America is not compatible with the idea of racial inequality. As such, structural racism, a society that's structured in a way that produces inequality, is a threat to the American idea that says we are created equal and have these unalienable rights. And in, in your book, you write, and you, you write incredibly eloquently about it through both personal stories and really through kind of an explication of America's history and the way Americans think today. But in your book, you write that the idea can only survive as long as the nation inches away from racial hierarchy. Once backsliding begins, America is in danger. Speaking to you on the day that we're celebrating Juneteenth, it maybe feels like we're not backsliding or do you, are you worried, you know, the critical race is, are we backsliding? You know, mm. is that, is that what you think is happening right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, I think if I, if I consider it in a, as a snapshot in time, I feel pretty good where we are today relative to where we have been. But if we consider the short-term trend lines from, say, the summer of last year to this coming summer, the summer of solidarity following George Floyd's murder, um, and then the presidential election, the January 6th Capitol insurrection, and now today debates about Catholic critical race theory in 1619, then I don't feel so hopeful that we're going to finish, you know, figure this thing out. It feels like we're moving backwards. But then when you broaden the aperture even more, I am much happier being a black man in 2021 than in 1921 or in 1821. So the nation has absolutely progressed. And the fact that we're arguing about whether critical race theory will be taught in K through 12 schools instead of arguing about whether or not I can vote, um, uh, you know, ne never mind the legislation that may make it more difficult, but whether or not it's even available to me or whether or not I have um, I, I am a human being and whether or not my community should count 
uh, in a census count as a full set of people instead of 60%, um, that is a signal of progress. And it's so it's the long view that gives me hope that we're figuring this out, even though in the shorter term, uh, it does feel like we're taking step backwards. But it felt like this after Obama's election and the Tea Party movement sort of rose up. Uh, it felt like this after uh, Donald Trump's election and there was a sort of racial resentment that was coursing through the country. Uh, and so we have these fits and starts, but the large, the larger view of the project, I think, suggests that we can overcome this moment. I, I may be wrong, but that's uh, that's where I'm at. I got to say, one of the uh, passages in your book that really struck me was your quotes from John McCain when he yeah. lost the 2008 election right. and those eloquent words that, you know, I had completely forgotten, you know, not the kind of words that we heard during the Trump era <laughs> at all, but talk, talk about that a little bit because it, it really um, hit me when I, when I read it. Yeah. And so I, I focus on McCain's concession speech for um, a couple reasons. The, the first one is the sort of obvious reason, reason given the arc of the book. And that is how it's it's sort of called to my attention the history behind my name, which is Theodore Roosevelt Johnson III. And McCain um, talks about Teddy Roosevelt in the context of recognizing the historic victory that the nation had just seen in electing its first black president. And he sort of recalls the moment in October of 1901, where Teddy Roosevelt invites uh, the black educator and prominent civil rights um, leader of Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner. Now, black men had been to the White House before Frederick Douglass had visited Lincoln, but always through the back door. Um, the dinner invitation to Booker T. Washington suggested a kind of equality because dining with someone doesn't suggest that you're superior to them, it suggests that you are equals. So much of the nation rejected that, but the courage that uh, Roosevelt, and actually it was, it was a lot of political pragmatism and sort of expediency, but it still was a courageous act. There, there's always a mix, by the way. <laughs> right. There's That's right. always That's a right. mix. It angered many people and it, it inspired some. And, um, you know, a couple of folks that inspired were my great grandparents who named their third son after the president as sort of a claim on the promise of America and a belief that it wasn't ridiculous to uh, name their uh, black child in South Carolina after a rich white New Yorker uh, Republican president uh, who was uh, sitting in the White House. So there's that piece. But then McCain transitions um, and he, he says something that really sticks with me. And it, this is uh, one of the things I call out in the, the book. He says, nothing about America is inevitable. And I love that phrasing because we often think that the ending of slavery was, of, of course, it was going to happen because it's inconsistent with our principles. Even the framers of the Constitution said these exact same words, that this thing is going to die a death on its own in its, in its time. Um, the, the Civil War wasn't inevitable. Uh, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, the desegregation of the military, uh, the Brown v. Board, none of these things were inevitable. Uh, it required leaders, principled leaders, Courageous people. It required going against the grain. It required blood, um, lives to be sacrificed in order to bring it about. And so it is a product of work. And what I'm suggesting in, in the book and in sort of in this conversation about race writ large is that if we just believe racism is going to die a natural death on its own or it's going to be bred out of the, the public as older people die off and new people, new younger people take take the mantle, we are wrong. We were wrong. We were about to celebrate our 250th birthday in the next few years. And we are still talking about our history as if 
the reason for the Civil War is up for debate, as if the, the, the presence of racial inequality is an idea that's worthy of debate. Now, we can talk about the role of certain policies in remedying it or causing it, but the fact of its existence should be something that every American recognizes, given our history and given the present state of the various range of group differences across different socioeconomic factors. So, Ted, after reading your book, I felt like I knew your family really well, mm. and I felt like I, I knew how much you loved it. Did your family celebrate Juneteenth, and, and what did you do? Did What was it like? Yeah. So I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I am the child of a mother who grew up in southwest Georgia under in Jim Crow and a father who grew up in the, the tobacco Piedmont Plains of South Carolina under Jim Crow. And I had never heard of Juneteenth until I went to college and I went to an HBCU, Hampton University. Juneteenth, uh, and, and then I, I learned at my HBCU that Juneteenth was something that Texans did. And it was because it was this moment where people in Galveston learned about the Emancipation Proclamation. And I said, well, that's pretty cool for, for them and didn't really think much about it. So Juneteenth wasn't something that I celebrated, wasn't even something that I was aware of growing up. And frankly, that bothers me a, a little bit. And, and so I'm. this is part of the reason for my answer at the top of the, the program about why I'm happy Juneteenth is a national holiday now, because now it exposes more Americans to the reason for celebration, but also, as you mentioned, how complex the emotions are around this moment. Um, the end of slavery, uh, we usually tie to the 13th Amendment after the Civil War, um, but the Emancipation Proclamation put those things in motion, and that was basically an executive order during wartime for a geographical boundary that was outside the purview of the man who wrote the executive order. Um, and so to think that the end of this horrible institution, its end was instigated by like a pen on a piece of parchment and that that couldn't have happened in the 80 years prior in the nation's founding is really frustrating. And the idea that it comes out in 1863 and that the folks in Galveston don't learn about it until June 19th, 1865 is really bothersome. And the fact that after many in the community were told about the Emancipation Proclamation and their freedom, um, that white plantation owners kept it from many of their enslaved black population and kept them working under slavery conditions for several months after the proclamation had been made public and there were union forces in Texas to enforce it. So this is both a moment to celebrate our progress, to celebrate the courage that it took um, on both in our leadership and among the people, but also a moment to recognize that people will still exploit and weaponize even the best uh, actions in, in their own self-interest um, and undermine our, our democracy in the process. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, you know, I consider myself a history buff. I devour books, uh, biographies of American presidents and books about the Civil War. I said on the show a couple of weeks ago that I don't remember learning in school about the Tulsa massacre, nor do I remember learning about Juneteenth, right. even knowing about it until the last few years. So it's a sign of how, as I said at the opening, uh, uh, you know, our history is continually being rewritten and rightfully so. Uh, let's just talk about one um, sort of 
item at the front of the political agenda right now, and that's voting rights. Um, we have, after what looked like there was going to be a complete standoff uh, with Joe Manchin rejecting the voting rights bill before the People Act that passed in the House, he has now opened the door to a possible compromise how uh, optimistic are you? Uh, do you endorse the compromise uh, that uh, Joe Manchin has uh, proposed, which Stacey Abrams has endorsed? Uh, and how optimistic are you that this could lead to a break in the logjam so that there is voting rights legislation? Yeah. So, uh, look, I mean, the, the things that are in the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, the things that are in the H.R. 1, S. 1, um, these are things that need to happen in order to protect the fairness uh, to to uh, really like implement fairness in our democracy, but you're not, but you're not going to get all of it. You're not going to get. Yeah, we're not going to get all of it. That's right. Right. It's not going to happen. Uh, so barring that, then um, I think Democrats should to work to get as much as they can. Um, not because it helps them politically, but because it actually creates a more participatory and inclusionary democracy, which everyone should want. That should not be an item for for contention. So if the Mansion Compromise turns out to be the thing that both sides can agree on, fine. Do I think it's actually going to happen? Um, I, I think about this in terms of state interest. Is it in the interest of the Republican Party to implement any of these voting rights protections or, or reforms for our democratic system that are in the even the mansion compromise? And the question is, um, parties like nation states are governed by interest, not necessarily by principle all the time. And the question will be, does the Republican Party believe that the way the passage of the mansion compromise reshapes the electorate, helps or hurts them in a way that prevents them or makes it more difficult for them to win elections? I don't know the answer to that question, but here's what I do know. If they are completely intransigent on voting rights protections, that's going to hurt them more than if they find some way to compromise on uh, on, on things within the mansion compromise uh, within the mansion uh, offer. Uh, I don't know if this is going to happen. And frankly, the the cards are in McConnell's hands. And, and he's made clear he's not going along. He's not going there. Right. He's not going there. But if you can get um, the Romneys, the Lisa Murkowskis, uh, keep the cinemas and mansions of the world then maybe you can get enough um, to, uh, to, to make um, some, some difference, to, to find some area of negotiation. I'm not feeling especially hopeful right now, but a week ago, I didn't think Juneteenth would be a national holiday today. And here we are. Ted Johnson, I want to thank you uh, for a fascinating discussion. The book, again, is When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. A lot of fun. Thanks. Great. Good discussion. 